Welcome everyone to the third episode of the Berkeley Sports Law Podcast. Today I have a very special guest with me, Derek King, a native of San Jose, California, and now plays guard for Cal Basketball. Before we delve into the interview, here's a beat from our friend Wise Child. You can find his music at Sounds by Wise on Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to music. Thank you for listening. This podcast was created with the idea of giving law students and those interested in sports law a chance to hear from those in the industry. So we've heard from sports agents, we've heard from transactional attorneys, but it's rare for us to get a chance to sit down with an athlete and get an inside perspective uh, on the game of basketball. So I wanted to give our, give our listeners a chance to hear directly from the athletes and give you a chance to share your story. So maybe if you could give the listeners a little bit of background about you and your, your path to Cal basketball. Okay, yeah. Um... Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, my path to Cal basketball is actually pretty interesting. It's, I never really would have expected that I would have ended up here. Uh, I grew up in Asia, I uh, played basketball. I was actually a late bloomer because soccer was my first sport, but um, I, I, I transitioned over to basketball around seventh grade, played with my friends at lunch, and I quickly got better, and I, I loved it. I had so much fun playing it, but it was always, playing college ball was never really like something I thought was actually going to happen because I thought I was going to finish my high school career in China. But uh turns out sophomore year of high school I I uh, unexpectedly moved to San Jose, California from Shanghai. And that's when I realized that uh my my uh dream I guess of playing college basketball kind of became more of a reality and I played high school ball at Santa Teresa High School in San Jose and uh did pretty well um but I wasn't recruited that highly out of high school I only had like division three offers um and junior college interests so I I was I was um not really satisfied with that so I I wanted to go higher so uh I convinced my parents to send me to like a a prep school which is basically like a basketball like gap year school where I could just take a few classes to stay eligible but um still work on my game develop as a player and also get recruited by potential schools to maybe get a scholarship so uh at La Jolla Prep which is what it was called it was actually a pretty corrupt system and actually um went under so halfway through mm-hmm. uh there was about 30 players and players were just quitting left and right because we were originally in two houses and we actually got evicted from one of the houses and we couldn't even afford gym time um, mm-hmm. and we never even took classes so there were a lot of uh, unkept promises and it was just it was a mess to be honest but luckily out of La Jolla Prep I, I was seen by a small NAIA school called San Diego Christian um, who offered me a partial scholarship so I was pretty happy about that and I I committed um, and then I went to San Diego Christian for one year uh, ultimately at San Diego Christian I I felt like I was my game improved and it, mm-hmm. it was it was a pretty good learning experience overall but I just didn't feel like it was the right fit so after a year I decided to go from San Diego Christian to junior college 
um, called Foothill College. And back in the Bay Area. Yeah, back in, uh, kind of close to Stanford. And I, I played there for two years. My first year, I, I expected to go in and just dominate coming in from like a four-year school. But uh, actually, it was a big learning curve. It was a totally new system. And I actually came off the bench um, and did solid, especially towards the end of the season. But it wasn't the type of season I envisioned. So I didn't really get much college interest out of that. But my second year, that was kind of when I fully got comfortable with the Princeton offense, uh, the mm-hmm. new system. And I didn't really have to think while I was out there. I kind of internalized the offense. So I was just kind of playing, making reads. And uh, I, I did a lot better. I uh, had a couple games where I went off for like uh, 30, 27 high, mm-hmm. high amount points, averaged double digits, and we did pretty well uh, as a team, made playoffs. Uh, started making a name. Yeah, started getting some interest uh, from Division two schools. Um, yeah, oh, and something I forgot to mention is like the year before at Foothill, uh, the year I didn't start, but we, we actually made it to the Elite Eight of mm-hmm. the state, which gave us like pretty good reputation you guys upset the number one seed yeah we did fresno um fresno city college they were like the the one seed and we were i believe the 16th seed and mm-hmm. their, their record was like 28 and 3 or something like that and we were like right around 500 and we we came in and actually upset them which was no one expected that so mm-hmm. that that really put foothill on the map and gave our our program some more credibility so um yeah after yeah, yeah. So, so that was that was kind of the end of the junior college and prep school journey mm-hmm. and then w- what was it what was the jump to getting to Cal basketball okay so yeah like I said I, I never really expected Cal basketball going into Foothill I actually told my coach at Foothill when he was recruiting me um, what my goals were and that was to play at a, D, a D2 school and earn a scholarship at a school mm-hmm. that was either in the um, the UC San Diego League I forgot what it was called I think it's the um CCCA mm. or CCCA. It was like the partner league of wherever you were playing. Yeah, KC. yeah. So basically, like they they play like Cal State East Bay, UC San Diego, right. um, Humboldt State, Chico State. That's a competitive D two league, and it was my goal to earn a D two scholarship. And um, my coach said it, it was an attainable goal, but it w- it would be tough for sure. You know, just with how competitive it is. So mm-hmm. I mean, that was my main focus, just to earn a scholarship, whatever level that might have been. D2 or NAIA, but never really, you know, thought of D1. Um, that was always just kind of like a, like an afterthought. It was kind of like a dream that I mm-hmm. didn't know if it was actually like going to happen. But it was always like my dream to play D1 ball since like high school. Since you but started playing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the dream for everyone, I think. But, uh, you know, I didn't know how realistic it was. But when I was at Foothill, I actually... It, the the junior college system actually provided a great template of like all the classes I needed to take and I, I switched my major over to communications which was tailored more towards my learning style and I, I actually did pretty well academically much better than high school um, I, I earned like a 3.7 GPA which is solid mm-hmm. and I applied to a lot of schools just as a regular student and with knowing nothing to do with basketball mm-hmm. I mean, I said on my application, like, oh, I'm... You've had a history I'm of part playing, of playing but... basketball. Yeah, I'm part right. of the team. So I, um, I, I applied, just not knowing, you know, where I was going to get in. I applied to all the UCs. I applied to USF, Santa Clara, a bunch of other private schools. Um, pretty much potential schools I thought I would 
have a chance to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the goal there was like, let me get in as a student and see if I can walk on eventually. Yeah, or, right. or earn a scholarship. Or earn a scholarship. Right. Yeah, because I feel like if I had gotten into a school, it just makes the the recruiting process so much easier for a coach when I email them or get in contact with them, or my coach gets in contact with them on my behalf and just say, hey, this kid Derek King already got into your school. Right potentially could be a good fit for your program you know take a look at him right. it's just a lot smoother so that was my thinking process um and like i mean i didn't really know where i was going to get in um because in high school i had a 2.7 gpa which is not horrible but it's not great yeah. definitely not you know berkeley standards but yeah. um so i really didn't know where i was going to get accepted i got accepted to uc riverside and uc merced out of high school and i got rejected from every other school that i applied to so um I really had no idea where I was going to get in. I I kind of just, you know, applied to a bunch of schools and just hoped for the best and turns out that I I I actually got into like every single UC except for UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um I got into all the private schools I applied to, Santa Clara, USF. Right. So I I really think going to junior college was like one of the best decisions I made because I mean, basketball aside, it kind of gave me a a fresh start, you know, from high school where yeah. I had like bad grade well not bad grades but it gave like, you access to all yeah. these you know higher level institutions that you exactly. didn't have access to yeah it was kind of like like my mom was kind of in shock when i got into these schools because <laughs> she 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 hadn't she was just surprised because she she knew i wasn't always a strong student and, yeah and maybe yeah. part part of that is a game of basketball kept you in the schooling process too oh absolutely. maybe if you didn't have the chance to keep playing basketball you maybe got disillusioned by just the process of being in school for that long. Absolutely. Because um, you had to go through like the entire gamut of different circumstances. Yeah. From Shanghai in high school, we went to high school together at Santa Teresa High School. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you said you talked about the corruption in San Diego. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to going to a prep school and then going to a JC and now here at Cal. So I think that's why it was really interesting to you know have a chance to interview with you and listen to your story, um, because you've had every single experience someone could have in the right. schooling process, and. Um, I guess shifting gears to the game of basketball then, um, how did how did that the Cal basketball tryouts or um how how did that process go? What did that look like? Yes. So basically uh, what happened was I, I, I finished my, my year my last year final year at Foothill. Um I I created like a highlight tape of my best highlights. I I got film on my best game, like mm-hmm. a complete game with turnovers, mistakes and all. Um, and I compiled all of that and then I went to a bunch of exposure camps, but for Cal specifically, um, I told my coach after I got accepted to Cal to contact the coaching staff, like on my behalf mm-hmm. and just, you know, like you coach at Foothill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't really expect, you know, it was, it was a long shot. I mean, that's high major, uh, D one basketball there in the pac 12. Right. So I knew it was kind of a long shot, but I, you know, I figured, you know, you, that would have been a dream come true so why not you know explore that option so uh my coach contacted him he he let me know that he he did and he sent them my information sent them my tape told them a little bit about myself and uh two weeks later i get a call from cal is mm-hmm. uh his name is tim o'toole one of the assistants gave me a call and said that you know they they'd be potentially interested in you know having me as a preferred walk-on at cal um obviously not guaranteeing any playing time and I might not be traveling certain times but right. he, he said that I would have the a door roster was open. spot yeah, yeah. And, and you know as soon as I heard that it was it was like a quick you know decision it was a no brainer I, I have to tell all the other schools like 
um, I made my decision already. So. Right. So I, th- I think that's that's a pretty amazing story to hear, especially for budding basketball players in high school and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, and it seems like the theme of the stories you've been telling is um, having to adjust, uh, having to kind of figure out the different circumstances of your different environments. I think that leads into the next question. Um, I wanted to talk about adjustments as far as being an Asian-American basketball player. Um, you see in the NBA, one of the few players is Jeremy Lin. Um, there's been a few international players. Um, and I think something that Jeremy Lin's talked about is this um, this perception that when he walks into a gym that he has to kind of prove himself. Um, there's not an assumption that he's going to be athletic or a great scorer, but every time people assume he's he's just lucky, like when Lin Sanity was going on, right? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a perception that's been attached to a lot of minority players and especially Asian American players, I think, mm-hmm. coming up in the college system. Um, so maybe you could speak on that a little bit, how, I guess, just just being who you are, how that has to be an adjustment and how you have to prove your game every time you walk on the court. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can definitely relate to that, like what Jeremy was going through. I mean, I think firstly, just the recruiting process as an Asian American, I think you're automatically labeled like high IQ guy or he, he can shoot it. He knows the game. But he's gritty. He's yeah, intelligent. He's, it's, it's never, oh, athletic, dynamic. Right. You know, they'll, they'll use words like, oh, this smart player. But, you know, I mean, it's, or if, if someone is, like, athletic, they'll, they'll, they'll use words like, oh, he's deceptively athletic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You see that a lot in, like, for white, court or white athletes. Right. Or- yeah. yeah, and and it's I mean it's definitely true. I I've I felt it myself. You know, just being super under recruited at a high school, I felt like I had I had the body, I had the size, um, I had the skill set, but I just didn't really feel like I I was getting the recognition that I felt I deserved. Right. Um. I think it's it's just it's just hard. Um. I mean, you look at like you look at a guy like Jeremy, like he's California Player of the Year, right. l- leads his state, l- leads his team to the state championship, and right. he doesn't even get a one D one offer. Right, because people yeah. people look at the game and they're questioning, you know, is it legitimate? Yeah. Rather than you know seeing the product on the floor and assuming that'll translate. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and yeah, it's just always like you you gotta just play with the chip on your shoulder and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's all, all, obviously, like, I feel like there's a lot of preconceived notions, like, oh, okay, like, coaches just have certain perceptions just set in their mind about Asian players or or whatever, and, and I think that's kind of a, a hard part about college sports and even pro sports is just, like, you got to play through it, you got to, like, just be mentally tough. Yeah, right. so is, is that your yeah. advice to the you know, maybe other Asian American athletes coming up in the system who are probably facing the same type of criticism or um, just struggles is it just to play with a chip on your shoulder and you know, kind of ha- knowing that you have to prove yourself is that how you tackle these stigmas or yeah I, I think definitely like if you, if you want something so bad that you're never going to give up I mean I think that's that's the main thing that determination you know regardless of skin color just playing your hardest working on your game and just playing through all that adversity because I mean, if you never give up, chances are you're gonna have some good things happening. Right, and I think so. That that's that's really good to hear. And then you know, on on the other theme of you know having to adjust, um, you've played in so many different systems now. You talked about the Princeton offense at Foothill. You played for a prep school. You played you know, now here at Cal Basketball. Um, I guess how do you go about approaching the the game, and how do you how do you get mentally prepared so that you can play instinctually rather than having to worry about what is this system around me. Um, 
So what what goes into this? Is it about preparation or is it just keep keep getting the reps in or? Yeah, I think with basketball, so much of it is is mental, and people don't realize. I mean, obviously, it's a physical sport, but like you you talk about the different styles. Like when I went to prep school, it was kind of just like, all right, let's roll the balls out and just play. Like it was unorganized. Everyone's just trying to score. But uh, when I went over to Foothill Junior College, we we did Princeton offense, and it's like a totally different type of basketball. We played and defensively too, not just offensively. Defensively, we played midline defense, so. Uh, the lowest guy helps and the guy cracks down and it, it, everyone's helped over on the midline so I wasn't used to all those rotations so mm-hmm. it, learning that I think that was like a big uh, benefit to like my game especially college basketball because you, you have to understand midline def- defensive principles and as far as like offensively on the, when it comes to Princeton offense it was a lot of it was it's one of the most complicated offenses in basketball I mean because you're you're doing an action on one side. You're making a read, whether it's to backdoor curl or pop. Right. And then there's action on the other side as well. And based off of what one guy does, all four other guys has to, you know, all be on the same page and react to what that person does. So it really took a while for me to learn that. Like I said, my first year was a struggle because um, I was always thinking uh, out there. And it, it took me a while. But once I got it, I started really making strides. Um, and right. yeah, I think that comes with just repetition and just game experience and, uh, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think sometimes as a fan, you probably don't, you don't see that or understand that process. Like even, even with the Lakers, when they had Steve Nash and Dwight Howard, they tried to run the Princeton offense. Mm-hmm. And the reason Mike Brown got fired in six games is because it was hard to implement. It's because it's hard to play instinctually when there's yeah. all those things going on. It takes time to adjust, like yeah. I said. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting to hear that perspective and understand that there's more going on than just rolling the balls out and seeing who's oh, yeah, both athletic or right. I, think, I think too when it comes to Princeton it's like it, it really helps when everyone's bought in and everyone learns it um, because it, initially it's gonna you're gonna go through some bumps in the, in the road and it's mm-hmm. not gonna be as smooth as, as you expect but once your team really starts to gel and, and understand it 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 really I mean that's the reason why we beat Fresno City I mean they, right. they couldn't Artists. It was crazy because we were just playing so together that one game. Is um, that is that difficult at the JC level where players are kind of trying to put themselves on the map to get everyone to buy into a system? Because when they get the ball, maybe they want to score. And, oh, you know, absolutely. To, right. Exactly. And and that's what made us so good that one year um, is because we we all just wanted to win. But yeah, um, compared to years in the past, maybe like with other JCs, it's it, it is tough. It's hard to find that balance between. All right, I want to get a scholarship, but also like I want to do what's best for the and team. Let's win, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we we kind of talked about you know the adjustments of being Asian American athlete and adjusting to the college lifestyle and coaching. I think something that would be really interesting to hear. Um, we talked about a little bit about this informally, um, just like the average day of an athlete. Um, and I think a lot a lot of people who are consumers of basketball like fans of the game or fellow students of yours who are not athletes they don't really understand the dynamics of your everyday life right everybody yeah. has exams everybody has these school responsibilities mm-hmm. but as a college athlete as a d1 athlete you have this plethora of all these other things on top of it mm-hmm. um so maybe you could just take us through a normal day the type of things that maybe as you as a player are required lift right. sessions film sessions right. things like that yeah, um, so it's 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 a little different um, preseason and during season, um, 
before season, our conditioning is pretty much at its peak, and we'll condition like five days a week. Um, we'll lift three or four days a week, and then we'll also practice two days a week. Um, and and that's challenging, obviously, because you're putting your body through so much stress. But uh, as season comes along, it's we, we the our practice times go from one two hours a week to three hours a day. So mm. it's it's twenty hour. Uh, practice time a week versus mm-hmm. just two hours of practice time a it's week. It's like a full time job almost. It, it it is it is honestly it is because we have we still have our regular class schedule. Uh, we have to be full time students. We have to take a minimum of I've, I believe twelve units, and we have three hours of practice time, which sometimes includes weights and film um, from twelve to three every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, we have. Uh, events we have to go to, whether that be going to like um, feed the elderly breakfast or do some community service. Um, last year, I believe we went to a hospital to do a meet and greet, um, things like that. We do Christmas party. Um, so even on the weekends, we'll practice on Saturday and Sunday. I think that's that's a big, uh, big adjustment I have to make from junior college even is the fact that um, we're practicing so much to the point and, and we have activities and breakfast and, and other things that we, we have sometimes just that are unannounced and mm-hmm. you can never really plan things as a student athlete because you never really know when you're going to have to report somewhere. It's kind of, you, you got to go to class and you got to be on the team. Exactly. Everything else has to find a way to fill in exactly. if, it, if it can. Yeah. Cause sometimes you'll have like a free period of awkwardly like, you know, you'll have awkwardly like one hour of free time between you know class right. and in practice and in weights and then you might have to come in later to get more work in right um and then you have to do a team dinner you know so it's it's just it's and then i mean that's not even taking into account the travel you know when we travel we have a road trip to arizona we play arizona and arizona state we go to right. oregon we play oregon and oregon state so we're gone most of the time for out of class three days school. to five days yeah we miss class and you know we have to stay on top of things i mean yeah granted they do give us uh, opportunities to get tutoring and things like that but it's it is it's a it's a big load on our plate for sure yeah, yeah. i think i think that's something that's important to keep in perspective um all these athletes that we are fans of and love to watch are full-time students alongside us and you know we get stressed out without having those responsibilities yeah um so something i want to i guess touch on is you know what kind of things do the ncaa provide as far as perks or benefits to kind of alleviate the fact that you have to do all these extra things is there housing accommodations tutoring like you mentioned um food stipends something that could help in this process or maybe something that the NCAA should implement um, that would help you guys as student athletes to get rid of this burden? Uh, I think, yeah, uh, well, I don't know if this is an NCAA thing, but uh, Cal does a good job with uh, providing tutors and help and Mm -hmm. resources for students that might need the extra help. Um, And as far as like perks and stuff, we get um, an app on our phone with a bunch of different places we can check in and use $12 a day to get food mm-hmm. and um, we also have um, our little cafeteria area where we get free lunch every day um, so that that's definitely a perk it's usually pretty good healthy food as well yeah. so I mean um, that's a big perk obviously we get a good amount of gear um, 
just to travel in and we have some subsidized housing where we can stay at the scholarship players get checks to pay for their rent and uh yeah that that we we have some help and some funding assistance when it comes to like dental and like um clothing stuff right but um is yeah it, is there anything you think is missing from the system when you think about you being an athlete something that you wish was there like some travel accommodations mental health resources things like that because it's it's easy to get down as an athlete if you're working all day studying studying most of the day and you have to kind of get rid of most of your social life it seems like there would be beneficial to have extra resources um i'm not sure from your perspective what that would look like um yeah i mean definitely i think you know this is a this is like a a topic that's kind of sensitive but um a lot of people believe that student athletes should get paid mm-hmm. um i mean as as a scholarship athlete you know they they get scholarships and stuff but when you when you look at the the billion dollar industry you know right. it's it's that at the end of the day the school's profiting from uh what we do and the right. um and it's 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 one of those things where yeah we are accommodated for a lot in a lot of areas but um i think for me personally maybe some sort of uh financial compensation in some sort of manner right. would be would be nice but i uh, i'm not complaining you know it's it's even though it's really tough it's still manageable um but if if i were to pick one thing maybe maybe um something some small financial some help structure. assistance yeah and i think from from the legal perspective we talk about you know these rules quite a bit um you know, the NCAA has like rule 16.01.1 which basically says bans extra benefits not generally available to the institution student. Um so I mean a, a famous case that came up was Dwayne Jared and Matt Liner at USC. Mm-hmm. Dwayne Jared rented a house from Matt Liner's dad at a subsidized fee and the NCAA said that was an extra benefit that was afforded right. to the athlete. And that's something like if I, if me as a Cal student had a connection, I could use that to get cheaper housing, right? but that's something that you know to kind of build up this illusion of amateurism in NCAA sports that NCAA wants to have that in place um and i i think in recent years we've seen through lawsuits and things like that that the rules may start to change a bit mm-hmm. like the stipend that you mentioned that Cal athletes get for food um that didn't exist 4 or 5 years ago yeah. the NCAA typically had a cap that you can only give players scholarship costs and room and board um and in recent years due to like Northwestern attempting to unionize and you know Ed O'Bannon brought a famous lawsuit against the NCAA these type of cases brought you know, brought these needs of the players to the forefront and I think that's who, as lawyers and as um advocates of policy change that's that's why we're having interviews like this to get the perspective of athletes and what they actually need so that we can we can bring those changes you know in a legal framework for you guys yeah um so I think I you kind of just touched on this topic a little bit the difficulty of navigating amateurism. I was wondering if the NCA does any you know type trainings on this how how well do they prepare their athletes to you know avoid some of these pitfalls? Do they do they kind of show you the rule books or they bring in legal counsel? Do they um bring in people to advise you on these issues at all? They do, but um there's just so many little rules. I mean, right. I think they uh, there were some people that came in and gave us like a brief overview. They gave us a little Uh, PowerPoint presentation or whatever about the main rules about amateurism and stuff of that nature. But there's so many little rules that, you know, you don't really get told about like yeah. 
for example, uh, I was penalized last year. I was ineligible for about three-fourths of the season because it turns out that um, I my unit, my average unit per semester was at 11.8. Because you you took the last quarter off or something. Yeah, right? so basically at my junior college, I did what was called the IGETSI template for transferring. So basically I fulfilled every single requirement. I, I got good grades. I didn't cut any corners, but I finished the semester early. I finished a quarter, a quarter early, right. I should say. So they divided it by all f- you know, three quarters yeah. instead of the two quarters where you actually took classes. Yeah, so, so right. basically... I, I was taking classes every quarter, but after I finished my um, my requirements, I didn't take any classes because I wasn't even sure what my major was going to be. Yeah. So they f- took that quarter where I took zero units, and they factored that into my average units. Right, and that's so not that, something that yeah. you know, the athlete controls, I, yeah, right? Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, as a student athlete, I figure, okay, well, I'm, you know... I, I've done a good thing. I, I've finished early. Yeah, you got you know, penalized I, I got for finishing ahead. school early. Right. So, right. and then, I mean, I was 0.2 units mm-hmm. off. Uh, I think the, I believe the the minimum units that need to be averaged to be eligible is 12, and I was at 11.8. Right. So how, how did that go about getting fixed? Did you have to petition the NCAA or? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I went into Cal, I, I was on the team, everything, and then I, I, I get told, oh, by the way, we, we reviewed your, you know, information and mm-hmm. it turns out you're actually, you know, they told me the whole spiel and, uh, I, I was just so confused. I mean, I, I was just shocked. I was like, like really like 0.2 like percent. Like, I mean, it's right. not like, not like I cut any corners. It's yeah. just, I'm getting penalized for it. So it's just a technicality. And that's, right. I think that's the problem with a lot of the NCAA rules yeah. is like the Dwayne Jarrett example I mentioned, the extra benefits rule, yeah. right? It's this illusion they're trying to make that players are amateurs. They're not allowed to do all these right. things. It's like if if I would understand if it's like I I cut a corner, you know, I get an F in a class, right, right, you know, something like that. But so so I mean, it it was really unfortunate. I had to forego about you know three fourths. Not not like I would have played significant minutes as a walk on, but it, yeah. it it was, you know, unfortunate because it was just out of my control and I had no knowledge of it. And yeah, it, it yeah, was tough. I think this is where. The NCAA needs to make a little bit of an adjustment by allowing athletes and allowing players to have access to legal counsel. You know, think about any other job where it's a big enterprise, like you said, a billion-dollar entity. You know, the employees have access to legal knowledge and training and that kind of stuff. Um, and like in baseball, for example, high school players are eligible to hire agents. Um, but if you go to college, if you join the NCAA system, you can no longer have an agent. You can only have a legal advisor mm-hmm. only if you enter the draft right right so there's all these you know wonky rules that are kind of made up um just to keep uh, to me in my opinion just to keep athletes down um so i think that's something we're, we're going to try to work on in the law school and the legal community is see if we can push the boundaries on this a little bit and give athletes the the opportunities and access they deserve mm-hmm. um so i get well we kind of we t- talked about the journey we talked about college basketball um and your role in the NCAA. I think we'll conclude just talking about the game of basketball in general. Um, I want right now in the NBA, basically, they play, everybody's playing pace and space and three-point shooting and all this stuff. And we've seen kind of the role of technology start to intertwine with the game of basketball, where teams are using biometrics and all these things during practice to analyze speed and heart rate and things like that. How has that affected, I guess, Cal basketball and how you've kind of been playing basketball during this turnover 
where the game started to become about pick and roll and swinging and um, I guess how, how do you adjust to that and how does the role of technology start to play in um, basketball? Yeah, well, like during our practice, I mean, uh, we've we've implemented what's called the catapult. Um, it's kind of like a little undershirt we wear and there's like a little monitor that you attach to the back of it and you mm-hmm. strap something around your sternum to like, you know, measure your uh, heart rate and stuff like that. It basically just has a formula that calculates like your load um, how hard how hard you're working pretty much and um, our coaches well our strength coach puts that on for us while we practice during different phases so we, we would wear it during our conditioning phase right now we're practicing we're wearing it during practice I, I believe he's going to want us to wear it for a couple exhibition games even too just right. to, to monitor stuff um, it how does it affect me I guess it only affects me just because like I'm wearing that additional stuff right. I mean once you get used to it you get used to it but it's just an extra you know I think thing you have to the wear. articles I read where players worry starts to come in is imagine you're at the free throw line and you're the meter shows that your heart's beating really fast the next day the coach is in the locker room and says Derek why were you so nervous and missed that free throw yeah you know, so I mean it's going to give all this information to the coaches and it's going it, to I think the problem for players will become is it's going to create this this kind of leverage that the team will have over you where they have all this information about you um where it creates an kind of imbalance. Like even if you're working as hard as you can, maybe your heart rate's just naturally lower or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see the legal ramifications of that. Oh, yeah. Um, Especially with technology, you know, advancing so quick. You, I mean, the the amount of information that they can, you know, take from you is actually, like, pretty amazing if you think about it. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, that that is pretty interesting to think about. Yeah. So, you know, you've had a chance to play... You know, with and against a lot of great players, um, people like Ivan Rabb, Jabari Bird, who are in the NBA now. You guys got to practice against Steph Curry and Draymond this year. Um, I know you've come across Jeremy Lin um, in, in your basketball career. So I guess getting your perspective as a basketball player, as an athlete, what do you think separates these players, You know, the people who make it to the NBA, get to those elite levels of, um, of, of playing the sport? What separates them? Is it a mentality? Is it a you know, skill set, or is it just the opportunity is different for certain players? I think it's it's a combination of uh, all those things. I think definitely work ethic is a big one. Some people are naturally talented, so talent is another big one. And uh, athleticism, natural athleticism, that's another big one. Mm-hmm. And I would also say luck. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say um, if they have been provided an opportunity to showcase what they can do and show how their strengths as a player and and to showcase the best version of themselves I think that's that's a huge uh, benefit because there are a lot of players out there right now that are just as good just as talented but have never had a fair shot and uh, it's just that's just how the game goes sometimes sometimes you get lucky sometimes you fit into a system you 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 and the coaches get along great um, you you play through your mistakes. You develop a rhythm. Right. You get comfortable in a system, and you know things just work out for you. Sometimes you know a great talented player might end up somewhere uh, where they don't see eye to eye with the coach, or maybe you know mm-hmm. they don't fit into a system. Maybe they're more of like a system guy. And this, it seems like so know. much about is rhythm and being comfortable in your role. Exactly. And if, if those kind of things don't blend, even if you're the most talented. Yeah, and you don't, but you don't fit in that specific uh, coach's plans, or mm-hmm. you know, you're never able to play through your mistakes, like you said. Like if you get five minute spurts, 
and you turn it over and you get pulled, it's hard to yeah build those reps. I guess. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a big difference when you know you you take a shot and you miss it, and a coach is is saying, oh, you know, good shot, no worries, just keep, keep shooting. shooting it, yeah. all good, versus. What the hell are you doing, man? You know, know right, right. who you are. You and then know? you're so, second guessing what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, so you're just always just playing on eggshells. You're not really, you know, yourself. But to that, I will also say, um, you know, great players, they find a ways to play well. No excuses, no matter what. Mm. So, Even if the shot's not falling. Right. And and I think those guys are, are what's next level. The guys that, under any circumstance, any environment, no excuses, they're, they're just as good, just as, you know, no excuses. So, yeah. I think those are the next level guys, um, just regardless of you know situation. Right. So maybe maybe last question we'll end on. Um, we're, we're talking to a Cal basketball player here, and the season's coming up. Um, season tickets are on sale. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your perspective on this upcoming season. There's been a lot of turnover, new coaching staff. Um, uh, Marcus Lee's eligible this year. A lot a lot of new players, a lot of new faces. Um, I guess what what do you see as the trajectory of Cal basketball this year in the Pac-12? Um, I definitely think you know we're we're a lot younger this year. Our our coach is uh, he's definitely having us play a different style. We're we're playing more up tempo. We're pressing, um, and you know he he we're we're looking forward to you know the new season and seeing what we can do. Um, we're working hard every day and we're just excited to just get out there. Um, we're we're not picked that high right now, but um, we're working hard towards you know our goals of just playing to the best of our abilities and wh- wherever that might be. Um, it's still early on in the season, so it's hard to tell. Definitely with the addition of Marcus, it's it's gonna help us you know with the shot blocking ability and his athleticism. We also got Kingsley Akaro, so we're gonna have two seven footers, um, mm-hmm. you know, in helping us with you know shot blocking and rebounding and all that stuff so right. it's it is a totally different look than last year but right now it's just early, too early to say right I'd say, yeah. and you know, you've been used to being an underdog your whole career so i think you'll probably thrive on it this year if you're not being picked high in the pac-12 yeah uh, take that as fuel to exactly take over ucla and usc and right. all those boys yeah um so all right derek i think i think that's the we've exhausted our questions for today i want to thank you so much for your time um, for all our listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at Bejezel, B-J-E-S-L. And if you haven't listened to our first two episodes, the first was with David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent, and the second was with Greg Genske, agent of George Springer, who just won World Series MVP. So check us out on iTunes, follow us, and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening. <laughs>